and we'll do that. Well, Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, it's not a moment that we suddenly can do everything in our own strength, but in fact, we're so needy. Without the Holy Spirit, nothing happens here of any eternal consequence. And what we need and want more than anything is for realities to happen that are of eternal consequence. And so dependent on you, through your Spirit, we pray for your grace, that you would work through your word this morning, it might not return void, but accomplish all that you purpose for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, like I said, we're, we're finishing um, a series where we've been lo- looking at our communion with God, our relationship to God, particularly as the Trinity, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, if we're honest, it's often in our minds and it's often thought to be a very impractical doctrine. It is amazing that Jesus, because our reading just now, and Jesus on, our, on the night of his betrayal, the night before he dies, as he prepares the disciples for his departure to the cross and his eventual departure as he ascends back to the Father, that he would spend such a large amount of that time preparing the disciples by teaching them about the Trinity, about the, the Father's relationship to the Son, the Son's relationship to the Father, of the coming Holy Spirit. And there's this point in in John 14, verse 8, where Philip says to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? So he says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, you don't know me? Like, I've been with you this long, you don't even know me, really? Because if you're asking that, you don't know me. And it's just a reminder, and it's a warning, that we can spend a lot of time perhaps around God, around the things of God, and yet not know God. And so we've been in this series, Walking with God, trying to answer kind of common Christian questions, which is, what does it actually look like to, to know God, to have fellowship with God, to have communion with God? We've said it over and over, you know, like we we're often common with becoming a Christian, I understand the gospel, I understand how I get in, but what is the fellowship with God? What is the nature of that? And so we've been talking about that. And since God, the God of the Bible is revealed as the triune God, that is, there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-eternal, co-equal, of the same essence. And that has a shaping effect to how we commune with God. So on a couple of levels, because God is one, and that all of His, all of his works are undivided, then to know one of the persons is, in a sense, to know them all. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus will say. But yet, within the same work, that is undivided by the Trinity, there are different roles that are appropriated to the different persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that actually has a shaping effect on how we relate to them primarily. So Paul expresses some of this in his benediction to the church in Corinth. This has been our, 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 our verse of the series. Maybe it's, hopefully it's memorized. It's 2 Corinthians. It's Paul's benediction for the prayer of benediction for the church in Corinth when he says this, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's been the the structure of our series. That the Father is primarily mediated to us in love. That was week, well, that was a couple weeks ago. We did that first. 
That the Son, when we see the Son, we should not think, oh, He's coercing the Father to love us. He's dispositionally against us and full of anger towards us. No, well, He does bear the wrath of God, but actually the Son comes out of the overflow of the Father's love. It was before, for God so loved the world that He sent His Son. And so when we see Jesus, we actually see behind Him a fountain of love. Actually, a fountain of love because the, the Father has always been a loving Father eternally because He's always had a beloved Son eternally. And then we, when we looked at this, the, the Son is primarily mediated to us through grace. That was, that was last week. That since the fall... If we want to earn our salvation, like there's, there's actually no possibility of that. We may try, that's not possible. No, what we need is grace. And what we get is the Lord Jesus. He is grace of God given to us in His person and in His work. And so now we turn to our communion with God, finally, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. On that night in the, in the upper room, the, the disciples are obviously and understandably really fearful. A lot, of, a lot has happened in that room that would cause a lot of fear. Jesus has said that one of you will betray me, and Judas has left. He said to Peter, their great leader, and you will deny me. He's told them that he's going away, and he tells them that they're going to be persecuted when he leaves. That people are going to come and they'll be removed from the synagogues. They'll actually be killed and they'll be killed by people who believe in doing that. They are serving God. And so in John 16, 6, Jesus says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Do you know what that's like? I don't know if you know what that's like. When all you have is sorrow. Your heart, that's, it's filled. Your heart, the core of you is filled with just sorrow. And then Jesus says, nevertheless, see, while your sorrow may be very understandable, it is unnecessary. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. John Owen expands on that. He says, I tell you the truth. I who love you, who takes care of you, who am now about to lay down my life for you. These are my dying words that you may believe me. I who am truth itself, I tell you. You know, Jesus is making this, what he's about to say, as emphatic as possible, I think for at least a couple of reasons, so that the truth of it might pierce their very extremely troubled hearts, but also because what he's about to say will probably seem almost impossible to believe. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's good for you. It's actually to your profit. You're, you're worried and you're sorrowful about things that are actually good for you. And Jesus explains, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So it's good that I go away because what, what's coming next is even better. And you know, that, that, that must be a hard thing to believe. What they have right now is the bodily presence of Jesus with them. Like, he's right there. They can see him with their eyes. They can, they can hear him, his words, with their ears. They can touch him with their hands. And Jesus is saying, when I go away, that will be for your benefit, because what's coming is better. Like, Jesus doesn't just say the helper is coming, and it's a little, it, it doesn't, emphatically doesn't say it's a downgrade, but he doesn't even say, and it's just as good. You know, like, you're kind of breaking even. It's just as good. No, he says, it's better. It's going to be better. How? It can't be 
in his person, like he's a greater being. Because both are equally God, sharing the same essence. So the better must be found where? In his ministry, in what he will do. A ministry that comes after Jesus completes his work because his ministry proceeds from Jesus' work. And that just fits with who the Holy Spirit has been in all of eternity, that he is distinguished from the Father and the Son as he who proceeds from the Father and the Son, as the Spirit. His ministry is always that, and it flows out of who he is as that procession, as, as, as one who goes forth from the Father and the Son. He is the one who brings life, who completes, he perfects, he applies, if you like, the plans of the Father and the work of the Son. So in the work of of redemption, theologians have kind of tried to summarize these things in in different kinds of ways. Here, Here is a few of those. That what the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. Or you might say, the Father is the source, that is love. The Son is the mediator grace, when the Spirit is the consummator. Or, finally, one more, the Father is the promise maker, the Son is the promise, and the Spirit brings about within us the Amen of faith, Michael Horton writes. So you can see why Jesus must depart, right? It's not because Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place together. You know, of course they can, they share the same essence, they are the same they're of God. They are God. No, it's because the, the, the exact ministry in the new covenant of the Holy Spirit is dependent on the finished work of Christ in His dying for sin, in His resurrection, and His ascension back to the right hand of the Father. So then the Holy Spirit comes and applies that good news in our hearts, indeed throughout the entire world. So that's my prayer. My prayer is that we would just have a fresh, fresh sense and a real conviction that Jesus is absolutely right. It is absolutely to our advantage that the Holy Spirit came and that actually without it, the great work of redemption would have remained as just the Father's plan. It would have remained as just a, a thing that Jesus did 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And it would never have landed here, you know, in our hearts in northern Gold Coast, in Australia, 2024. But praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's the plan for the, the sermon. We've got three, three main things. First, how are we brought into this fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the nature of it? Second, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit as our comforter. And third, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit as our teacher. And maybe there'll be a fourth where we like respond to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay, so there is a fourth. It's not a maybe. Okay, so first... How are we brought into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? How does He give us new life? Um, When the Nicene Creed confesses the Holy Spirit, it states it like this. He says, And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. So you don't actually have to wait very long in the Bible before you see the Holy Spirit doing His life-giving work. Like When you're looking for the Holy Spirit in the Bible, you don't have to go to Pentecost. You know, you can actually go right back to the very beginning, actually the second verse of the entire Bible, right? Genesis 1 verse 2. The the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, hovering. It's a picture like a bird. 
Meredith Klein writes, hovering over the face of the waters, poised to fashion deep and darkness into heaven on earth and promising to transform the death realm into the realm of abundant life. He's a life-giving spirit. Fast forward, you've got Israel wandering in the, in the kind of formlessness and the void, if you like, of the wilderness, and the Spirit is there hovering over the people of God as a, as a cloud, forming, creating, if you like, a new nation at Mount Sinai. Fast forward, it is the Spirit who brings life into the womb of Mary. Luke 1.35, the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, will cover you. At Jesus' baptism, Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a, a dove. Very similar to creation. The Spirit gave life to Jesus when he was in the tomb. Eight, Romans 8 verse 11, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, the Spirit gives us New life, right? Spiritually, because we were dead in our sins, we needed him to make us alive in Christ. But also, our physically, one day, he will raise our resurrected, he will resurrect our bodies and we will live forever, physical bodies, in the new heavens and the new earth that he will consummate. Michael Reeves, um, in Delighting in the Trinity, describes the, the triune nature of the, the kind of the life that the Spirit brings us into. And, and it's just, just a wonderful summary. He says this, that the Spirit is about drawing us into the divine life. The Father has eternally delighted in the Son through the Spirit, and the Son in the Father. The Spirit's work in giving us new life, then, is nothing less than bringing us to share in their mutual delight. That's awesome. That life He gives as He proceeds from the Father and the Son well, of course, it's a life full of love because that's what the Father and the Son have been in all eternity before the creation of the world. So you think about it like this. If God were not triune, imagine God were not triune, He was a single person, well, then there, that would rule that out, wouldn't it? There would be no eternal fellowship to, to be brought into. That the Holy Spirit would end up being not a person but an it well, it's hard to talk about having fellowship with an it. You know, you're sitting on a chair right now. It's an it. It's a thing. I don't know if you'd say I'm having fellowship with my chair. That would be a bit weird. But you are using it, right? It's useful. It's helpful. It would be the same with the Holy Spirit if he were an it. It would be useful. It would be, it would be you know, we could like kind of try to utilize him as we would a force, a power, a kind of thing like that. And sadly, I mean, that's not uncommon in the church, that the Holy Spirit is primarily used as, how can I summon this power and kind of use this power? But no, he's a person who comes and makes us alive, bringing us into the love of the Father and the love of the Son. See, we want to be like Jesus, right? WWJD. I want to be like Jesus. And often we mainly think about like the kind of works that Jesus did. And it's actually a really hard guess. You're like, I don't know if I actually really know what Jesus would do in this particular moment. But in one sense, I mean, what could you say is more like Jesus, the Son, than if you're loving the Father, which He has eternally done? In fact, what could be more like the Father than if you love the Son, whom He's always loved in eternity? And so that's been kind of one of the main themes of this series, is that, that we might see that in salvation, God does not remain distant. 
Salvation is not something that he kind of... Here's some free grace. Drops it off in the letterbox. You can grab that. There it is. God's not distant. That actually the main offer of the gospel is him to us. Fellowship with him. Knowing him as Father, Son, and spirit. I think that kind of corrects already some of the ideas that I think happen prevalent sometimes in the church, and that is that, that really the, the, the main kind of ministries and the workings of the Holy Spirit, they aren't really for every Christian, but they are for a particular bunch of anointed Christians. You know, like they're kind of like the, the kind of excellent and, 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 and elite ones who really know how to kind of summon the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so they, through a few techniques, they might be able to teach you the similar kinds of things. No, this, the Spirit is a free gift from the Father and the Son to all Christians. Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You belong to Christ. You have the Spirit. If not, you'd still be dead in your sins. So when we see baptisms later on, this is kind of the picture that we're seeing. Baptism is a, it's a meaningful picture, right? It's not like a symbol that's just kind of arbitrary. It's like green lights, we just decided that means go. I didn't have to, but we're just like, green light, I reckon that means go. We all know green means go. That's not what baptism's like. It's actually, we're seeing something enacted. So the person, when they're baptized, goes down into the water, right? They are dying, if you like, to their sin, their old ways. They're dying with Christ, now, the whole thing could get ruined in that exact moment if the person baptizing, it's going to be me today, just holds them down there, you know? Now, I'm, now I won't do that because that, that will kill them. That would be murder. And it would ruin the symbol. So I don't want to do that either, right? And that matters. So what we, what, if we're not going to hold them down, actually, they've got to come back up. Why? Because spirits brought life. Right, another way we could ruin it, actually, is like if you, when you do the baptism, just drop them down and then just go, help yourself. Do you know what I mean? Stand back and go, now you need to kind of like find your way back up. Again, that would ruin it. The person must be passive. They must remain passive. Why? Because we're saved by grace. We're saved by the work of the Spirit in our lives from start to finish. And so the Spirit comes and does that work. Now, how does He do that work? Well, it is through it's the Word of God, through the Word of God. So we're going to hear testimonies soon. And it's awesome hearing testimonies because a few things stand out. One is that they're all often very unique. Well, there's kind of just these different journeys that everyone's been on and, and it's just exciting and wonderful to see the different ways that God's grace has been at work in different people's lives. But it's also amazing to see how similar they are. Now, I've not read all their testimonies. I know, I know a few of them. And I don't know, I don't know all of yours. Here's what I do know. At one stage, the Spirit of God worked through the Word of God and made you alive. Now, how you came into the Word of God, whether someone shared it with you over a coffee or whether it was your parents at night or whether it was a sermon or whether you were just opening up the Bible and reading it, I know that that happened. I know that the Spirit, through the Word of God, made you alive. Galatians 3 verse 2, let me... Paul writes, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit because you did something? Because you heard something and you believed it? Faith comes from hearing. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. Um, Tim Chester makes this point in a great book, Enjoying God, where he, he looks back in time. It's not really like this anymore, but people used to say, you know about children? They are to be seen, 
and not to be heard, right? You remember that? Um, that's what people used to say. So, Tim Chester said, with God, it's actually the reverse for us right now. He is not seen, but he is to be heard. I've heard this question get asked a, a lot of times, and sincerely and well-meaning. And the question goes something like this, when did you last really know that God was speaking to you? When did you last really know that God was talking to you? And one answer is, it was the last time I read this book. Now, I'm not always great at listening, but there's no doubt he was speaking. He is always speaking through his word. And in that, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, opening up our hearts, passage by passage, truth by truth, to know the love of the Father, to know the grace of the Son. So that's the first point. The Spirit's work in bringing us into the fellowship of God through the Word of God. Now, our fellowship with the Spirit as our comforter. Now, in this passage, uh, in this section, I am drawing a lot on John Owen, the Puritan John Owen, in his classic work, Communion with God. Uh, it is an excellent book and very, very helpful. Our fellowship with the Spirit as our comforter. He begins that section, actually, by before addressing what the Spirit actually does by, by, by recognizing we do live hard lives. That life can be extremely hard. Living in a fallen world, we struggle with sin. We struggle with the effects of the fall in creation. We struggle with injustices to us and throughout the world. Life can be very, very, very difficult. Sufferings of all kinds. Where will you find your comfort? Where will you find your comfort? We've got to have some comfort. And the world obviously is offering comfort. So saying, well, here's some comfort, and here's some comfort. You can fill it. You, you, you know. Okay, as I go through what the Holy Spirit is offering as, as our comforter, just compare. Just in the back of your mind, compare and think, where else would I go than this? So first, we have the ministry of the comforter, the Holy Spirit, reminding us, Owen says, of the promises of God. John 14, 26, Jesus says, The helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So in that upper room on that night, Jesus is offering the disciples all kinds of comforts, all kinds of comforts, which Jesus knows they're going to forget more than they remember. And he says, well, don't, don't panic about that. The Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to bring to your mind remembrance of the promises that I've made to you that you can hold on to. He still does that. Again, it's through his word, but there is a promise for every occasion in your life. Are you feeling weak? Grab a hold of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Are you suffering? Romans 5, verse 3 promises suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. You're struggling to understand God's providences in your life. How can all of these things be happening to me? Cling to Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you fear facing death? There is Romans 14 verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. As you stumble along in your Christian life, do you fear that God might one day give up on you? Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 8.38 says, Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just grab a hold of that. Worried you won't have everything that you need? Philippians 4.19 says, Otherwise, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Are you feeling alone? Matthew 28.20 says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you feel condemned? Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Obviously, we could go on and we could go on and we could go on and on and on. There are comforts for, in every single promise of the Lord that, that the Spirit longs in fellowship with Him to apply into your heart so you would, you would know these things. The reason that a bunch of Christians can get together in a room like this and some of us can be in the most difficult and hard and painful circumstances and yet we can all stand and sing some songs like, It is well with my soul. How? How does that person that you know in this room, with all that's going on, can say, it is well with my soul? They are clinging onto promises. They've got promises that they're believing. And so they have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Second, the Spirit glorifies Christ. John 16, 14, Jesus says, The Spirit will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. So He's going to take me, He's going to give it to you so that he will be glorified. I've read this out before, but it's a great illustration. J.R. Packer writes this. He says, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, he will glorify me. This passage. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. I had the same moment. That is the illustration my message needs. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its detail into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Well, think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at Him. See His glory. Listen to Him. Hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him. And taste his gift of joy and peace. How good is that? He glorifies Christ to us. It's a great test if to know if a spirit is true or false. Does it diminish Christ? Does it glorify Christ then? Third, the spirit pours the love of God into our hearts. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to who has been given to us. That's just an amazing picture, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit is there and He's kind of standing above our hearts and He's just pouring God's love in there. You know, just not stingy, just pouring it in. You know, He's not like, you know, if you're a parent that gives your children fizzy, you might just be like, just, a, just, just enough little bit. Okay, that's enough for you. 
this is not the Holy Spirit, is it? He's like, love of God, <laughs> you know, just pouring it in. Because he wants you to know it. Like not, meant, not just in your mind, but experience and know you're loved. He's not going to do that. It's psh. John Owens calls this an inexpressible mercy. Fourth, the Spirit testifies to us that we are God's children. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're not children of God by nature. We are children of wrath, children of the curse. We're not children of God. And, he, and the Spirit makes us alive and adopts us into the family. Now, having come into the family, if we're, oh, we don't always feel, we don't always experience experientially being a child of God. Like we don't know it in our hearts all the time. That kind of fluctuates. And the Spirit is at work to remind us regularly, because I think regularly you might wonder, can I really call myself a child of God as I am? today. Can I actually say, with all sincerity, I am a child of God. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there's an Old Testament law court background to that where you do need two witnesses. And so the spirit, our spirit is one, of course, but we do need another. And John Owen paints this um, picture where our adoption as children of God is, is, if you like, put on trial, because that's the, that's the nature of this imagery. And so we're put on trial, and so, and so we, might, we stand up, and we give our evidences, and we say, I am a child of God, you know. And you point to all the evidences of God's grace in your life, all these kind of interests that you have in God that you just you wouldn't have if you weren't one of his children, the, the kind of holiness that, that the, the Spirit has been working in your life, and you, you try to like detail all the things that would show, no, I, I am, I am a child of God. Our Spirit is testifying. But then we, uh, then we rest, right? We sit down. And another stands, Satan, the accuser. And with the law in his hand, he says, how can you say such a thing as you are? And he points to all of your sins, the things you failed to do, the things you should not have done, thoughts, words, deeds. He points to, he kind of tries to undo all the things that, all the evidences that you brought. And you said, well, there's this. And he go, he would point to all the flaws that were in them. Well, that wasn't actually, there's imperfections in even those. How can you say such a thing? And so he finally rests. And for a moment, the soul hangs in the balance. Suspense fills the courtroom, but then another stands up, another witness. It's the comforter. And he says, everything that the previous person said may very well be true. Yet they are a loved child of God. Not on the grounds of their goodness, but on the grounds of the work of Christ on his behalf. And so the matter is settled because there were two witnesses. If you can truly cry out from your heart to God as your Father, the Spirit did that. Unbelievers don't do that. In a moment of terror, a moment of worry, 
The unbelievable cry out to God, oh my God. But it's never, oh my father, is it? You never hear that. It's because it's the instinct of a child when they're in danger to cry out, dad, help dad. And when any child needs it most, a good dad wants them to be the most sure that they are his. And so it is with God, with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, saying, cry out to your father. Cry out to him. He is yours. Fifth, the Spirit seals us. Ephesians 1.13, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. There are a few ancient uses for seals, um, and they're all helpful to, to, to develop this picture. So one was that a person's, it was like a person's image or their character put on the thing that is being sealed. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. He puts the, the, the person and the character of God on us. It's ownership. He's saying, they're mine, right? They look... They're becoming and more and more looking like me. A seal would confirm an agreement that this is true. This will not be taken back. And so that God gives us the Holy Spirit as a seal and says, I'm not changing my mind. I'm not going to renege what I've done for you. No, I, those whom he predestined or foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Well, finally, a seal also keeps important, precious things, safe. And Jesus says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. You are Christ's. And so you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Six, the Spirit is a guarantee of our future inheritance. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the idea is that you would, and, and you, maybe you've done this before, you, you, put down a, you put a down payment on something so that you're saying, I'm good for this. The rest is going to come. More of the same thing that I've just put a down payment on as. And so the fullness is coming. It's a, it's a guarantee. The rest is coming. And it's a taste of what's in store. So you imagine a child actor. I've never been a child actor. That would be shocking. But I think it goes something like this, right? They can't, afford, they can't handle all that money right at once. So it gets put away. It gets put aside into a trust. And you can have a look a little bit. You can withdraw a bit at a time. And it's a, what is it? It's a guarantee. No, you... You're going to get the whole lot one day. Like the whole thing is yours. But it's like a little foretaste. It's like here it is. And that's kind of what the Spirit is like. Because eternal life is to know God. And now we know that in part. We have the Spirit. Now it's, we know Him imperfectly because of us. But it is a great foretaste that one day there's just going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more obstacles. That we will enjoy fellowship with Him perfectly and purely forever. Owen says every drop we get from heaven now has us longing for the ocean that's in store. You know, for the world when it experiences hardship, which, which way does it look? You know, you, you generally, you look backwards. And I was like, man, the old days. I was, I was younger, I was fitter, less flabby, less groaning when I got up, all that kind of thing. Like everything's falling apart and you, just go, you look back and go, those were the days, right? The world was simpler. There was no TikTok and social media and things like this. And so the person just wishes for the old days. But the Christian doesn't do that. Experiences the longings. And we're not like going back on, oh, man. We're like looking forwards going, we have everything coming. How do I know? Because the Spirit has, is a guarantee of that. And He's at work in my life. I have fellowship with Him. So that's the Holy Spirit as our comforter. 
How does he work? He works through the Word of God, primarily. How much, you just wonder, how much comforts have you forsaken because you have not been drenching yourself in the Word of God? It's a good reason to come every week. It's a good reason to come Thursday nights to Bible study. It's a good reason to come early for church and go to equip and get more of the Word of God because it's all comfort. It's the Spirit is fellowshipping with us and offering us Christ and the love of the Father. Okay, now, next point. The fellowship with the Holy Spirit as our teacher. We've got three quick things. First, He brings conviction of sin. He teaches us conviction of sin. John 16 verse 8 says, When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So, of course, we need conviction. Conviction of sin, that's obvious. We need conviction of our guilt before God. Righteousness? You Actually, we also need to be convicted of our own good works. They're not going to save us, right? Because we can hear about our sin and our guilt and go, all right, I'll, I'll figure it out. And you go, nope, you need conviction of your righteousness as well. You also need conviction of judgment. There is coming a day of reckoning when the Lord Jesus will return and what will be at stake on that day is all determined by your, re- your reaction, your relationship, your response to the, the Lord Jesus. And so he teaches us of sin. You might think, oh, this took a dark turn. So many positive things coming from the Holy Spirit, and now we're talking about conviction of sin and things such as that. Well, that's actually a really good thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Much better than being left in your sin. Much better than being left in those things that will cause your eternal damnation. That's a kindness from the Lord. The Christian actually asks for it. Open up the Bible and say, show me my sin. Search me. Show me my sin. Show me my Savior. All right, next. The teaching of the Spirit in sanctification. It is growing in holiness, changing us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're changed, right? We're changed. Christians are changed, and we go from glory to glory to glory. How? The Spirit says, look at Christ. Behold His glory. You will be transformed by that. We are transformed by the people we're around anyway. You know, you spend enough time with someone, and you start to act like them. You have this kind of similar mannerisms, a similar kind of humor, and all those kinds of things. Like, oh, I'm shocking at this. Like, if I speak with someone who's got a, like a foreign accent for like a few minutes, I just start. I can't help it. I was like, oh yeah, bro. You know, like, and it's it's, it's kind of like that was that was Kiwi. <laughs> Thanks, Chase. <laughs> um, they probably don't even recognize my accent, but I know I'm doing it. I'm like, don't do that, you know. Don't, don't, don't like imitate them like that. That's awkward. It's, it's not nice for them. And they probably think you're mocking them. Anyway, I'm not. In any case, if that's true for just people, especially for people who you admire, you're like, oh man, I admire them. You're going to become like them. So the Spirit puts in front of us the glory of the Lord Jesus. You're transformed in wonder of who He is. And in so doing, we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Third, the Spirit teaches us the joy of our salvation. How good is that? Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Thessalonians 1 6 says, You received the word in much affliction, affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's just like a central part to the Christian life and the Christian's walk is actually joy. Because the fellowship of the Trinity has been one of love and joy in all of eternity, and we're included into that, just the very nature of our Christian life becomes one of love and joy. Because our fight against sin is actually about joy. It's about where our desires are, what we think will make us happy. No one sins out of duty. You sin because you were tempted. And sin said, deceived you. It said, there's joy over here. Come over here. Here it is. And so when we are changed, we are changed when we see in Christ a superior joy. Thomas Charmins wrote in, in his, his article, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He wrote, Neither they nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection, but by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, neither they nor anyone else can be made to entertain it, but on such a representation of the deity as shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. They do not see the love of God in sending his son into the world. They do not see the expression of his tenderness to men in, in sparing him not, but giving him up unto the death for us all. They do not see the sufficiency of the atonement or the sufferings that were endured by him who bore the burden that sinners should have borne. They do not see the blended holiness and compassion of the Godhead in that he passed by the transgressions of his creatures, yet could not pass them by without expiation, taking them away. As it is, they cannot get guilt get quit, sorry, of their old affection because they are out of sight from all those truths which have influence to raise a new one. I hope that made sense. We're just putting in front of you fellowship and the love of God and the grace of the Son and the, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the sweetness of that. And so you just don't want to go anywhere near sin. Ruin that. It's superior joy. So that's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in teaching. We've had him as a comforter, a teacher. Now, how are we going to respond to him? The Bible talks about different ways you can respond to the Holy Spirit. Um, a number, number of ways you ought not to respond to the Holy Spirit. There is such thing as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That would be a total hardness towards him, a total rejection of his work in your life. The Bible says that that is the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Why? Because, of course, in rejecting Him, you're rejecting the Father and the Son who sent Him. Of course, in rejecting Him, you're rejecting the only means by which you can be forgiven. We can also grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. That relates to how we treat His person. Would you grieve Him? I love what R.A. Torrey wrote on this. He said, you know, how often some young man has had his hand upon the door of some place of sin that he is about to enter, and the thought has come to him, if I should enter here, my mother might hear of it, and it would nearly kill her. And he has turned his back on that door and gone away to lead a pure life, that he might not grieve his mother. But there is one who is holier than any mother, one who is more sensitive against sin than the purest woman who ever walked this earth, and who loves us, as even no mother ever loved. 
And this one dwells in our hearts. If we are really Christians and he sees every act we do by day or under cover of the night, he hears every word we utter in public or in private, he sees every thought we entertain, he beholds every fancy and imagination that is permitted, even a momentary lodgment in our mind. And if there is anything unholy, impure, selfish, mean, petty, unkind, harsh, unjust, or in any wise evil in act or word or thought or fancy, he is grieved by it. If we will allow those words, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, to sink into our hearts and become the motto of our lives, they will keep us from many a sin. How often some thought or fancy has knocked for an entrance into my own mind and was about to find entertainment. When the thought has come, the Holy Spirit sees that thought and will be grieved by it. And that thought has gone. Would we grieve him? Because he comes only to do us good. He comes freely. And he comes with all this mercy and all this grace and all these things he wants to work in us. What? We don't want to grieve him. Well, there's also 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. That's more about His ministry in us and through us. You know, you can, you can put a, uh, some water on a fire and you'll just you'll put out that fire. And then we just don't want to do that to the Holy Spirit. Of course not. We want to fan it into flame, both what He's doing in us, but also what He gifts us to do for the common good, for the good of others. But lastly, the Bible also says we can resist the Holy Spirit. You remember when, when Stephen, great Stephen, was on trial for his life in front of the high priest and the council, and he just begins preaching? You know, he preaches through the Old Testament and then he closes off with these words, not very politically correct and not trying to win friends and influence people, is he? He says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist him. He speaks and you don't listen. He moves you, you just always, no, not today. Not today. Maybe later, constantly resisting. He's, he's prompting, and you go, no. Is that to you today? Are you resisting him? Why? Why would you resist all of this? He comes to offer us just the beautiful life. He, he's, he convicts us of our sin. He says, no, 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 be honest. Why would you resist that? So turn from your lusts. Why would you resist that? Why would you grieve him? He wants to show us the love of the Father. Don't resist. He wants to bring us into the grace of the Son. Why? Would you ever resist the work of the Holy Spirit? Why would we? John Owen writes, he says, He, that is the Holy Spirit, willingly proceeds from the Father to be our comforter. He knew what we were and what we could do and what would be our dealings with Him. He knew we would grieve Him, provoke Him, quench His motions, defile His dwelling place. And yet he would come to be our comforter anyway. Praise God for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, hey? All right, can you compare that to anything in the world? Anything in the world going to do all that for you? I don't think so. I don't think so. So that's our series. Walk with God, brothers and sisters, Kumar Baptist, visitors. In the love of God the Father, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the Son, but of course, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, 
as well. Let me pray.